How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get Cox Internet powered by fiber with America's fastest download speeds. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. Analysis by Eucalypt Speed Test Intelligence Data. Fixed median download speeds. USQ3 2023. And welcome back to the Final Inspection Show. Steve Zotke along with David Hobbs at Road America and uh, NASCAR Weekend. And what says NASCAR more than David Hobbs? <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. People, you know, I say I'm laughing, but I did 18 right. Daytona 500s for CBS. So. And and you also drove the 576 and drove another race uh, for Junior Don Levy at Michigan. Right. In which you made the cover of the Midwest Racing News back then because you, oh you lost a tire, I think, or something. Well, I drove for old Juni, and um, I hadn't done very well. well. I did okay at Daytona. I mean, I finished eighth in the 125-mile qualifying race, uh, which put me on the eighth row. But then in the race, the um, link to the rear sway bar broke, which put too much weight on the front, and the right front popped going into turn one, and I hit the wall, just scraped it. Didn't, didn't do a lot of damage. But the mechanic I had at the time with... with uh, Working with Benny was not exactly what you'd call, uh, he wasn't exactly Toto Wolf. Um, <laughs> so we, we put the car behind the wall in the end. And then I drove again, with, this is Coca-Cola was sponsoring me in both these events. And I drove with Juni in his Ford at Michigan. And, um, and of course, his main driver was uh, Dick Brooks mm-hmm. in, the, in the 90. The 90? And you drove the 9. Is it the 9? Yeah. The 9 car? Yeah. Anyway, we qualified in about the middle of the pack. Um, but something about the track, the car, me, the day, whatever. Uh, I mean, I'm passing people right, left, and center, you know, including Benny uh, and a whole bunch of others. And suddenly, I realized I'm third behind Darrell Waltrip and Kelly Arborough. I thought, what the hell am I doing up here? <laughs> so what do I do now? Um, anyway, it was all resolved, because coming off turn four, I spun the thing, and it went through a complete 360 loop, and of course four was just right by the pit in, so it spun around, around, facing the right direction, into the pits, and pulled up from the pits. Junie Dunleavy looked through the curtain, the net, and he said, "That's the finest bit of driving I ever seen." And I said, "Oh well, Junie, it just you know comes naturally." I mean, my heart was doing about a thousand beats per minute. Anyway, things really, because that brought out the yellow, um, and things really started to unravel then, because unfortunately they didn't tighten up the right rear wheel properly, so I had to do a slow lap with the wheel flapping about, luckily it didn't fall off, so now I am a lap now, um, anyway, uh, however, I kept plugging on, um, and I'm getting hot, and it was 1976, and I hadn't done much driving in 1976, my IMSA days were more or less well, for that, no, I hadn't even started him, sir. I was sort of in a bit of a transition period right. between drives. And um, so I was getting tired. Um, and it's Michigan in June. In the summer, and yeah. God, it's about 100 degrees, about 130 in the car. And my neck was starting to give out with the G-load. And I knew that Dick was out. I'm not quite sure how I knew he was out, but I, I realized he wasn't anymore. So when I came in for my stop, so I'd say every time I came, I'd say... 
Jenny, if you want to put Dick in the car, we put Dick in the car. And he said, no, boy, you're doing good. You're doing fine. You're doing just fine. And I say, silly old twit, you're not getting what I'm getting at. My real, what you're I'm really, try, what I'm really trying to tell you is I want to get out. Anyway, I kept going to the end. I don't know where I finished. Um, and because uh, afterwards, I mean, I'm like a wet rag. I take my suit off to my waist and I'm sitting by the truck. Sweat just pouring out of me. And old Junior comes up and he says, boy. He said, I thought you was going to win that thing. So, um, unfortunately, Junie's no longer with us. But, I mean, that's the sort of guy that made NASCAR what it is. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was, you know, right in at the beginning, big friend of Bill, big Bill. (laughs) And um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, um, he was an amazing character. But, of course, I did actually drive a stock car on my very first visit to an American racetrack when I came over to do the Continental 3R in yes. 1962 in a Jaguar XKE for a chap called Peter Berry. And we were invited by Big Bill, as were a lot of people from Europe. Sterling Moss came, um, well, a, whole, a whole bunch of guys from England. Innes Island was there, uh, and Jimmy Clark was there. And Jimmy Clark drove my Lotus Elite, which had Dad's automatic gearbox in it which in its day was very advanced because it had four stepped ratios. And it didn't have a fluid drive, it had a friction clutch. So it operated just like a, a modern automatic. You could change it up and down by hand or just put it in fourth and it would mm. do its thing. And it didn't use any power or you know, very minimal power to run a couple of little pumps. Um, and it was very successful. And Colin Chapman, who probably was at that time probably the most inventive Formula One guy, um, developed the first monocoque Formula One chassis, developed the best suspension. Um, and he could see that an automatic would probably be the way to go eventually. Well, you know, fast forward 40 years and they're, they're all automatic. Um, and he asked me back in like November, he said, hey, there's this new race in America, three hour race. Could we borrow your load of sleep for Jimmy Clark to drive? So Jimmy was driving my Elite and I'm driving the XKE. The XKE, the fuel pump broke very early on, um, and I was out. And um, Jimmy was leading the class by miles in my car. Unfortunately, it's a three-hour race, so he had to stop for fuel once. And the blinking thing wouldn't start. The Mm. starter motor got fried, and it wouldn't start. But the entrant, Peter Berry, my entrant, had spun old Bill a huge line of cock and bull about <laughs> that I'd won this championship and I'd driven sedan cars and I'd won this and I'd won that and I'd, and I'd barely started really in 1962 and anyway so old Bill says to me and Jim how'd you like to try a stock car boys so I drove a Holman and Moody Galaxy in practice um, as did Jim and we both turned laps I think in those days it was about 150. Right, yeah. And the pole that year was probably fireball at about 155. So we, because I'd been driving my Lotus Elite all the season, I hadn't, I'd only ever driven a Jaguar XK at, at Daytona. So that was probably the first time I ever went 150. It was in the E-Type going down the back straight with no bus stop. Um, and of course, average 150, and as I say, I'd barely ever been much more than about 120, 130 before in a race car because I only drove little cars. <laughs> so, anyway, luckily, Dan Gurney, who had won the 3R in the RC Aero Brothers Lotus 19, he was hovering around, and of course, he was already 
pretty much a forward driver. So luckily they put him in for the race. Um, but I did stay on and watch the race. Was, oh, you did? Okay. I, I watched the race. Um, much to Margaret's disgust because we'd only been married a month. And, uh, ah. and Greg was one and truly on the way. So uh, we <laughs> I stayed over for another week. I think then the races were only like one or two weeks apart. So did you then drive back to New Because you, you flew in the, from England to New York. Did, did you fly out, do you, you know, remember, in, um, on to New York? Or? The return trip is absolute, complete blank. Hmm. I can't remember. I prop. I might have flown out of my. They did fly to Miami, though. Yeah. They certainly didn't fly to Orlando. The BOAC? Yeah. Uh, I might have flown out of Miami. Honestly, I just can't remember how I got home. But um, in the week or two weeks between the three hour and the um, 500, I became a bit of a pal of um, Fireball Roberts. And I think his girlfriend's name was Judy. Cute little blonde girl. And um, I went out with him two or three times. And of course, in those days, we used to go, there weren't that many yeah. watering holes in Daytona, but we visited them all. <laughs> and I remember one day at the corner of Beach Street and what was then Volusia Boulevard. It's now Bill France Boulevard. Mm -hmm. the, the main street didn't pass the racetrack. Where it crosses Beach Street, right downtown. It was about 2 o'clock in the morning, and uh, Fireball pulled up in the middle of the road and <laughs> turned the radio up on the car. And me and Judy were dancing in the, at the <laughs> intersection of Beach Street and uh, Volusia Avenue at 2 o'clock in the morning in, in early February 1962. Interesting. Yeah. How the hell do I top that? With difficulty. Because the other thing that uh, I was fascinated by, I was staying at the at the Carousel Motel, and I shared a room. On the beach? On the beach. It's gone now. It's right. up, up towards the Ormond end. Okay. It's gone now. And Jimmy Clark and I were sharing a room. And uh, my opinion of Jimmy, of course, had changed dramatically because in the, in the winter there used to be a thing called the Springbok Series, which was for Formula One cars. And they went all over Southern Africa, to South Africa, to Rhodesia, which is now uh, Zimbabwe, out to Durban in South Africa, up into Lorenzo March, which was Portuguese, East Africa, is now Mozambique. And uh, he had beaten my real hero, Sterling Moss, twice in, in the Formula One. Now, Lotus, I mean, Sterling was driving a privately owned Lotus. For, and, and Jimmy was for Walker? For Walker. Yeah. And, of course, Jimmy was in the, the factory car. But he had beaten him twice, and I thought, oh, boy, you know, this guy must be pretty good. And um, we shared a room. And um, one day, because we were both pretty amazed at the fact that cars were driving on the beach. Um, and one day, some dork got just a bit close to the water, and the next thing is the thing's up to the hubcaps in water, and then the tide's coming in. And I thought Jimmy Clark was going to have a heart attack laughing so much. This, <laughs> this poor idiot in the, in the water with his, with his car. And... Um, and also, that was <clears throat> just right around then. Skiffle was a was a form of music in England, and I suppose here, you know, which is mm -hmm. pretty simple: a couple of guitars and a washboard, you know. Yeah. And there was a chap called Lonnie Donegan, and one of his first big hits was a thing called Rock Island Line. She's a mighty fine road. She's a mighty fine road to run. And look at me, there I am going from the Carousel Motel to the track. And, you know, you cross all those level crossings in the uh, railroad crossings in town, in Daytona. And there goes by this train with Rock Island Line. 
on the on the freight cars, and I thought, well, I'll be blowed. There really is. I, <laughs> I just thought of it as a sort of a line from a song, and there there it was. There was a real Rock Island line load of freight trucks going by. See, our friend John knows that because he's a big train expert. Rock Island line. Oh. Well, <laughs> we need a few train experts around at the moment, actually. But um, so yeah, my NASCAR career was short. Um, relatively uneventful uh, and it was quite good fun I mean you know when you're driving at someone like Daytona obviously these cars now are incredibly aero mm-hmm. I mean these guys spend more time in the wind tunnel than Formula 1 people do because it's sort of got to have the silhouette and it's kind of got to look like the real thing but right because you know the template's got to fit but at the same time they massage every little tiny curve and tweak around where the wheels and the, and the fenders you know and then, and then when they do find something, they get yelled at. They so get yelled at. But, I mean, they do spend a lot of money and a lot of time in the wind tunnel. And, of course, those days, that Ford Galaxy was about as basic. I mean, it was a Ford Galaxy mm-hmm. right off the street, you know, with a bit of a roll cage in it. Um, well, up until the late 80s, early 90s, the hood, roof, and trunk was stock. Well, there you go. And then the windshield was too, yeah. and then they would add a Lexan thing on top of the windshield. Yeah. But those were still stock items. Yeah. So, you know, it's obviously it's come a hell of a long way. Unlike a lot of racing, I mean, a lot of the changes they've made, I'm not sure whether they're for the best or not. But I tell you what, Bill France was an incredible individual. Because um, one of the other British drivers that came over was Sterling Moss, who, mm-hmm. drove, a, who, who drove a short wheelbase Ferrari 250 GT short wheelbase. Which currently go for about thirty million dollars, yes. and um, can't remember what happened to him in the race. And I think Fireball drove a Ferrari too. He's on, is he on a Ferrari. Or he did a lot of road racing, yeah. but that was the thing where, you know, Big Bill knew he was a, he was a fan, and he wanted to he wanted to make Daytona an international track. Exactly. That's why yeah. he brought everybody over. That's exactly why he did it, and that's exactly how the three-hour morphed into the 12 and then mm-hmm. the 24-hour, because Big Bill wanted to internationalize Daytona, and he did a pretty damn good job at it, too, him and his son, mm-hmm. because, you know, it, it's always looked at now as the sort of first race of the year, the first big race, and everybody that lives in Europe and um, and even up here in North America can't wait to get to Daytona in February, because it's a great race it's a great place um well and you know and throughout the history of the track and and race there was always because it was an fia race it was open to drivers who had an fia license which that's how you got in 76 but any driver you know drivers have done that in the past i think jackie eeks even drove it one year and the Whittingtons and another well, drivers throughout of Rick Elford drove it. Yeah, that's right. And yeah. the Frenchman, who was what's his name? Um, gosh. Yes, I know who you're very talking. tall guy, and Big Bill and he got very close together. Um, but Bill was very astute. Um, him and his wife. Um, I mean, they ruled the whole thing with an absolute rod of iron. You remember all that stuff at um, at um, Talladega when the drivers right. didn't want to race there, and he said, "Well, I'll drive it myself if I have to." And um, Charlie Glotzbach won it, who nobody's ever heard of before or since. No, Charlie, no, he did, uh, Richard Brickhouse. Oh, was it? Yeah. I it was Charlie Glotzbach. Okay. But I, I mentioned Charlie last week oh. because he still holds the qualifying, or he holds record at, boy, just last week I mentioned it on the show, I can't think of it, at some track they were at. Uh, but anyways, he still holds the, the race record. Oh, Bristol. 
Oh, does he? When they were yeah. at Bristol. He yeah. still holds the 500-mile or uh, 500-lap record at Bristol from oh, 1971. Good. Great. Uh, yeah, I know. That's amazing. And he's still around, doing yeah. well. Well, the... Um, Not bad for a guy who got shot. That's right, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Him and uh, um, Bobby Johns, I think, are the only guys I know he got shot. Oh, well... Hanging out with the wrong crowd again. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, um, the track, the you know, Daytona was, you know, you look at it now and you look at it then. I mean, the difference was quite amazing. But Bill had worked all the usual assets for the tax, you know, getting a tax rebate to put the track there. And now, of course, it was then right on the edge of town. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, it's right in the middle of town. And, uh, and I gather the local authorities have been a bit pushy about trying to get some of their money back or not getting such big breaks and all sorts of things like that. But he had a vision. And... Um, you know, he wanted to get aligned with Le Mans. He liked Le Mans. Mm-hmm. And, um, and of course, I started doing the broadcasting. Now, Big Bill, probably his only slight weakness was, you know, when they wanted to do the Daytona 500, he he wasn't that keen. I mean, Ken Squire had Oh, you mean the live? When they went live, you mean? Or? Yes. Okay. He was not that keen on that live TV stuff because he thought it would take away from the gate. It's sure. Blacked out in Florida. It was blacked out in... in uh, Georgia and uh, Alabama and um, uh, the Carolinas. And, uh, I mean, it was absolutely, you know, Ken had pushed CBS for years. And it was absolutely the best thing that NASCAR ever did was mm-hmm. to have that live race because it drew, suddenly it drew an audience of six or seven million people, none of whom had ever heard of NASCAR before. And it put it right on the map. And um, you look at the TV income they make now. So he was very visionary, but he just had a bit of a blank spot on that. He couldn't quite figure out that this was going to be so good for them. Then I started doing the commentary from the very first one, the '79 one, with the big fight at the end. And I mean, that was, I mean, can you? I mean, talk about talk about a dream come true. The race and, and you had the big blizzard up north. Everybody was blizzard, snowed in. Blizzard up north, and there were a lot of other games were cancelled or not held at all, or it was just on a, a off Sunday. Mm-hmm. So suddenly you got about six or seven million people watching it who probably wouldn't have normally been watching the TV on that afternoon. The race was okay, but Kale and Donnie had got it all wrapped up and were running way out front, just head-to-head, two of them. Then on the last lap, I, honestly, I can't remember who was leading who, but... I think it was Donnie, because Donnie really wanted that. Donnie had never really... No. Donnie had won races, but he never won any of the big races, and I think he really wanted to win that. He dropped down to block Kale. Yeah. And he went further and further and further, practically in the grass. And then they hit each other and spun up and hit the wall on the outside of turn three and then spun down onto the apron and got out and immediately started fighting. At which point, our hero, Richard Petty, who's lying a very distant third, comes through and wins his 200th Daytona 500. <laughs> so, you know, a huge part of the crowd just loved Richard Petty winning rate. Meanwhile, these other two coves are fighting. Uh, Kale's taking his helmet off. <laughs> And as you know, Kale had the, sort of the comb over of all comb overs. And so once he took his helmet off and he's fighting, his hair's all flailing in the wind and he's hitting, uh, he's hitting Donnie with his helmet. And then on the slowing down, of course, Bobby, brother, big brother Bobby arrives on scene and he jumps out of his car and he joins in the fight. And Ken Squire is just about having a heart attack in the booth. <laughs> and, um, and I'm there with him. And, um, I mean, it was absolutely just... A storybook ending. You just couldn't get a better. And, of course, suddenly everybody's electrified by this NASCAR. And um been like that ever since. Yeah, it certainly has. Well, David, you know, I thought, I I know I can get some NASCAR stories out of them. And certainly have. It's been a delight having you on the show. 
at Road I, America. Who would have thought when you first came here in what sixty four or whatever yeah. that you know, fifty years later we're talking NASCAR at Road America. I never even thought when I came in sixty four that I'd be alive in fifty years, <laughs> let alone talking about NASCAR. And look how this track's changed too. I mean, my God. Well, it's changed, but the track itself has not, but everything else has. I think that's the beauty of it. That is the beauty of it. The other thing that's quite amazing for this track up here in the north is how smooth it always stays in mm-hmm. spite of the winters. A lot of other northern tracks like Watkins Glen, Lime Rock, the, the winter beats the hell out of them. Mm-hmm. But here, it's, it's all shale around here. This part of the world is all shale, and uh, which is what this place was going to be. It was going to be a mine, uh, a quarry. Uh, Cliff Tufty owned it. And they had the road race in the streets, and the governor finally said, whoa, 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 this looks a bit dangerous to me. You know, XK120 is doing 120 mile an hour past... 100,000 people standing mm-hmm. in the grass road. And so Cliff Tufty stepped up and said, well, I'll tell you, well, i got 800 acres. Let's turn it into a racetrack. And he patterned the track after some of the uh, the pattern of that original track, which you can still follow today. Thank, uh, thankful to the uh, historic uh, Elkhart Lake Preservation Society, who has yeah. a dinner a couple times a year, which you've spoken at, uh-huh. and which supposedly I'm supposed to speak at one of these times. Oh, my God. I kept, I kept telling John Callahan, I said, <laughs> do not on any account have Steve Zuck here. Hey, Watkins Glen had me for some reason, <laughs> so, you know. Yeah. But, yeah, no, it's, uh, it's yeah, it, it's fascinating. And people don't, and one of the other story is with uh, Elkhart Lake itself, which was a boom town before the war in the 20s and 30s, vacation town, because it was just far enough for Milwaukee and people from Chicago. But after the war, they really struggled. And the, the they did not have the uh, holiday people that they had prior to the war. And that first race in, in 50 was a way for them to, to bring people back to Elkhart Lake, and, and it, it's, it's really worked for them. Well, Elkhart Lake is a really charming little village. It's very pretty. It's got some great restaurants and, you know, off the rail, the coffee bar there, which everybody assembles at. Um, and it's become a very touristy town. I was just out last night, and the place was obviously full of people. And um, obviously it's got a lot to thank this track for that. Well, I'm being told by, by my producer we've talked long enough, so it is time to. Yeah, we've been. Boy, I think we're we're on overtime here. So, David, thank you once again, and uh, looking forward to chatting with you again. Thank you, Steve. All right, David Hobbs on the final inspection show brought to you by the legendary Great Lakes Dragway in Union Grove, and of course, David Hobbs Honda. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix and Rhode Island. Jam like you're all in the same garage. Get Cox Internet powered by fiber with America's fastest download speeds. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. Analysis by Ookla speed test intelligence data. Fixed median download speeds. USQ3 2023.